Hi friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This is the show for culture makers, which is all of us. I'm Ryan Harris, and today it's my pleasure to welcome Andrew Sandlin back to the show. Andrew is Fellow for Public Theology and Cultural Philosophy here at the EICC, and he's the founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership in California. This is episode four of season two of the podcast, and today Andrew talks about progressivism, where it came from, its influence on language and the understanding of history. We talk about the centrality of God's word, about Darwinism, some advice for Christian authors, pretty much how the self-styled progressive ideology gets everything wrong, including the idea of progress. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, well, welcome back to the show, Andrew Sandlin. It's uh, it's exciting to have you with us again. We had you on one of the very first episodes of uh, of season one. Now we're in season two, and uh, what we're doing this season is is sort of focusing in on what uh, what I've called the cultural pressure points, and some of these areas that are culturally significant, um, where the difference between godly and ungodly thinking even if it's subtle, is, um, is significant. And you wrote, uh, you wrote another article that, uh, that kind of flashed up, that really hit, uh, hit a lot of, uh, pushed a lot of buttons. And I just wanted to talk about, uh, about some of that and go off of that, if you wouldn't mind. Well, that sounds great, Ryan. It's great to be back on. i glad the CCL works shoulder to shoulder with the EICC and with the impending runner academy you guys are very close to my heart i appreciate that andrew i am uh, i am going to start um by reading a passage of scripture here and because we're talking about language and words and definitions um it uh, it seemed kind of obvious for me to uh to look at this passage from Isaiah 5, and I'll read, uh, I'll read out Isaiah 5, verses 20 to 25, and uh, ask you to comment on some of that. So we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like the dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and struck them, and the mountains quaked. And their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Andrew, can you just uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how uh, how this would have been received by its uh, by its original audience? Well, um, it's interesting you would ask that, Ryan. I've just been rereading the uh, the prophets. I just finished Jeremiah, of course reading Isaiah right before that. I'm reading them sequentially. This is one of those um, arresting, sobering passages in the prophets. And, of course, that's not the only one. There are a number of them. 
um, as we can tell, for the most part, it was not received well. What's happening there to uh, Judah, and uh, Isaiah's looking to the point, which actually later in the book of Isaiah uh, occurs when they are led into Babylonian uh, captivity. He's looking at what has been called the great ethical inversion. It's mentioned there in the first few verses. Um, it's not simply that God's people have failed the Lord. We all fail because we're sinners. And if we confess our sin, he forgives it. It's not that at all. It is an intentional turning of the back on God and particularly on his law, as he says there. And in so doing, they elevate what is evil and consider evil good and good evil. Now, the the obvious sin that uh, in which that occurs is idolatry, when... Uh, the worship of false gods is considered what it should be, and the worship of the true God uh, is uh, looked down upon as something that's uh, unnecessary or even wrong. And this worship of false gods is considered the way things, you know, the way things ought to be. That's an ethical inversion, even a perversion. So it would not have been accepted, but I think I uh, probably can understand a little of the intent behind your reading that, Ryan, that is also very descriptive of our culture today and also, as in the case with ancient Israel, with uh, with the church, the, the people of God. And uh, for the most part, Isaiah, there were exceptions, but for the most part, uh, the people did not listen to him. And uh, again and again, we read Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. God gives these prophecies through his, uh, his leaders, his men, his prophets, mm-hmm. and uh, in the vast majority of cases, uh, their their message is spurned. Had the people of God repented, God said he would have turned back his anger. Uh, but uh, they didn't, and of course they did uh, go into captivity. It was a tragic, it was one of the great, I mean, aside from the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, probably the most horrific time in the, in the history of Israel, even more so than the Egyptian bondage. It was just a terrible time. So, yes, uh, I think they would not have appreciated it, and I'm sure that those who hear that word today spoken authoritatively do not appreciate it, both in, appreciate it both in culture and the church. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, the, uh, the, t- the title of, your, of the article that, uh, that prompted this is, uh, oh, and I don't have it in front of me, but it was... Uh, the liberal or the progressive march towards God's judgment. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, there's, there's so much kind of packed into that brief article waiting to be unpacked. Um, but you start off by writing that liberal, the word liberal has kind of become a dirty word in the recent decades. And that, uh, those who, who had identified themselves as liberal are abandoning that term in favor of the term progressive. Um, and I, before before we get to, before we get into that phenomenon as such, I just want to first ask you about this phenomenon of you know, putting putting down certain words, picking up other words, or using words to try to mean whatever we say that they mean, um, irrespective of of a historical or an established meaning. Yeah, you've touched on a very big and crucial issue. Um, so of course there have been sophists and others historically, that the real assault on the logos, if I can use that expression, the assault on language and the transformation of language is overall a fairly recent phenomenon, uh, whether it's uh, 
deconstruction or various other forms of critical literary theory. And uh, almost all of it uh, grew out of Marxism and has been adapted by cultural Marxism. Uh, you really don't see anything like that uh, before the 19th century. Well, you see, it, you see a little bit of it around the time of the French Revolution, but as a, as a principal program, a way of operating, uh, it's, it's fairly recent. And uh, what the cultural Marxists understood, and before that the classical Marxists, they rightly understood the power of language. I mean, God himself employed language. He used language to bring the very worlds into existence. He spoke them, ex nihilo, into existence. So they understood that language is powerful, and because it's powerful, it can be misused. I mean, that's why in the law of God there are the prohibitions against everything from perjury to lying to taking God's name in vain and gossip and so on. But in this case, it's something even deeper, as you have mentioned there, Ryan. It is the intentional twisting of language and its meaning and, and giving old words new meaning. Uh, and I think in the case of progressive, that's certainly happened. Um, I pointed out in the article, and this maybe I'm anticipating your next question. I hope you don't mind, but the notion of, the, the notion of uh, progress uh, is by no means an unbiblical notion. In fact, I think if you read the word, you'll find that Though, of course, it's not found in the Bible in our English translations. Nonetheless, the idea is clearly there. I mean, all the way from the Abrahamic covenant to onward. Uh, in, in the ancient world, the Jews were actually about the only tribe or group that believed in progress as a historical phenomenon. Almost all of the ancients and the pagans embraced a cyclical view of history. Basically, Ryan, and to, to your listeners, they, they tended to look at the history of uh, nations and civilizations as we would a individual human life, that there's birth and there's growth and there's uh, strength and the pinnacle and then there's the slow decline and final illness and then death. Well, we know that's the course of human life since the fall, but they believe that's also the course of, of civilizations. Uh, but if you read the Bible, that's just not true. I mean, it can be true of some civilizations, but it's not destined Mm -hmm. to be true. Mm -hmm. The biblical way is for there to be progress. I mean, we even see it in the Garden of Eden. that It was intended that had sin never entered, Adam would have exercised dominion along with Eve and spread over the entire earth, and there would have been great uh, progress in culture, man's interaction with creation. So the Jews had that. They believed, rather than a cyclical view of history, a linear view of history. Uh, history is a line. It's going somewhere. And they knew that the place it was going was the coming of the Messiah to deliver them, and then this godly golden age of the prophets, including Isaiah. They're, in fact, it's interesting. It's kind of bookended. In Isaiah, there's early chapters of Isaiah we read mm. about this glorious age. And then as we get toward the end, we also pick up again on this great glorious age. But it's found elsewhere uh, in the scriptures. And so they believe that history's headed somewhere to the final eschaton, of course, uh, there was no hope of that in ancient uh, in ancient cultures, and so it's just sort of cyclical, and that leads to a cultural pessimism. I mean, uh, there were, of course, some great discoveries, but actually things tended to peter out because people lost confidence. Well, then we come to uh, in the West. Uh, by the way, it's particularly true in the East, but in the in the West we come to the European Enlightenment, and something very interesting happens. The Enlightenment essentially got rid of God and the Bible, but it did not get rid of this hope of progress. In many ways, the European Enlightenment is a secular form of uh, progress, a, a uh, 
de-Christianized view of historical progress. And then the notion was, by all sorts of scientific discoveries and man's reason, we could create the create the perfect world. And uh, toward the end of that, in the 19th century, Marx picked up the economic side of that. We can create, you know, heaven on earth, as it were, uh, apart from God. Uh, it's interesting that with the growth of postmodernism, there's kind of a move back among some postmodernists to the cyclical view of history. But now to kind of it's kind of a long answer, Ryan. I hope you don't mind. No, no, um, I love it. What, what's really happened, let's get now back to our specific case at this time, uh, 2018 in, uh, in North America and the West. Um, of course, liberal became a really bad word, and understandably because of the way the liberals acted and what they believed. So they adopted this word, uh, word progressive. And it really, in, its, in, in their usage, it really has a, a, a culturally Marxist denotation. For the cultural Marxists, uh, progress comes by conflict. And their view is that the latest is always, if whatever comes later is better. Uh, I was just reading, I uh, started to read a new book last night called The Concept of the Avant-Garde by a, a French uh, conservative writer. And he makes the same point with modernism, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, and Marxism is just a form of modernism, is the notion that history just kind of moves forward, and it's sort of an obvious thing that whatever comes latest is best. I think I quoted in the article to which you refer a statement that um, Barack Obama made to his supporters in 2008, and yeah, one thing right. he was saying, it's a very revealing statement. Yeah. He says, you can't vote for the Republicans, they would take us back to the 1920s. Now, what was fascinating about that is he did not go on to explain that. He did not go on to say, well, this was going on in the 20s, and we disagree with that. One could at least have respect for that argument because clearly things in the past, there were things that were evil. But no, the reason he could make that assertion without any further elaboration is because almost everybody in his audience would uh, naturally accept the worldview of the progressive worldview, which is obviously our ethics, just like our telephones mm -hmm. and our transportation devices, our ethics and our philosophy and our religion is far superior today than it was in, in 1920. So you can see, uh, because of this, there's another fact. This is on my mind, Ryan, because of the book I was reading last night. This is also why the, the progressive aren't, progressives aren't just interested in the gains they have made, the sinful gains, cultural gains of today. Think about it for a minute. Their history is always moving for them, but it's always moving to a higher plane. So therefore, they're looking not just for what's gained now, but the next best thing. Prime example of this is the whole notion of, you know, same-sex quote marriage. It's not really marriage, but so remember, if you recall, 10, 15 years ago, the whole issue is we want marriage equality. I mean, after all, shouldn't everybody have the right to marry, and not just heterosexuals? And so, in many Western cultures, including Canada and the United States, they have gotten that right, but they can't. It's not that they cherish that that right now, legal right. It's not a right in God's eyes, but it's a legal right. No, they must move on now to the next best thing, which is you must give us your approval. And if you don't approve of what we're doing, then uh, you'll be uh, vilified and in some cases uh, jailed. So you see how it's, it's the, the, the progressive notion is not what we have accomplished, but the next great thing we can accomplish. Now, the biblical view is not to oppose progress. The biblical view is to say that progress must occur on God's terms. So we can't just automatically say that the latest is the best. We have to say that God promises great victory in history, but only on his terms, according 
to his word and according to his law, as we read there in the, uh, the Isaiah passage. So this is important for Christians and conservatives, uh, conservatives in that they are Bible-believing, not to say, oh, we want to go back to the past, but we want to go all the way back to the Bible. That's the important thing. And our society will have progress as long as we embrace God, embrace his word, and act in all areas of life according to his word. That puts us on a massive collision course with the progressives who essentially want a secular utopia. What we want is the extension of the kingdom of God in the earth. And by that, the kingdom of God just means the reign of God. That is his authority in all areas of life. So really, Ryan, if you'll think about it, and I'll conclude with this and let you get your next question, it really is not a case of progress versus no progress. It's a case of biblical progress versus secular godless progress. We, in our view of progress, the Christian view, believe it must be according to the word of God. And, of course, the secular progressives believe it must be according to man's own autonomy. Right. No, that was uh, that was super thorough and uh, yeah, really helpful. Um, and so, yeah, brings up a couple of things. Like, first of all, like, is it? Uh, and this is just a quick yes or no question to see if I've understood you. But uh, is it is it fair to say that um, that the Enlightenment notion of progress tried to co-opt the biblical model, um, but sort of rip out the heart of the thing yeah i think that's a good metaphor i've never quite thought of it that way thank you for that's very helpful i agree it well i've hardly thought of it at all until you mentioned it <laughs> well you've you got great intuitions uh no it's i think that's right i think basically enlightenment wanted the benefits of christianity without christianity now what's interesting about that is you can think of i know you're aware of the history of philosophy, Ryan, and some of the listeners are too, of a, an existentialist philosopher, late 19th century, a German, who would not let them get away with that. Yeah. He's the one who says, we have killed God, you and I, and therefore you can't embrace Christian ethics and, quote, values after you have gotten rid of Christianity. That's a hypocrisy. And, of course, we all know who that is, some of us, Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. Nietzsche, Nietzsche essentially was holding enlightenment's feet to the fire and saying, you guys want to continue on with this sort of bland Christian ethics, you know, treat your wives well and uh, treat your, you know, your, your brother, your friend as uh, you would like to be treated. He said, but why should that be? If you don't really have God, if you don't no longer believe in his revelation, that we must invent our own values. That's what he called the transvaluation of all values. So, but yeah, that's the problem with enlightenment. It wanted the benefits of Christianity without Christianity. And of course it was a he was a failure. I don't mean that there were no benefits of the Enlightenment in some scientific areas, but I mean as a philosophy of life and culture, it was a dramatic failure. Right, right. So you you mentioned that um, the, these two these two competing definitions of progress are um, are like totally at loggerheads, and like what, one thing I see as uh, as you describe the you know the pagan cyclical. Uh, vision of history, uh, vision of progress is um, like just even in the very, the very um, word that we use to describe it as cyclical. Like you, you can't progress around a circle. You're That's like right. you're in no, you're never at any point 
further or closer from the center as you go around a circle. So like there's a, uh, I don't know if it's a, if it's a self-conscious position um, or if it's just something that uh, that's held uh, and it's, it's just sort of an, an ironic inconsistency, but uh, like how, how can you say on, on this, uh, this cyclical uh, contemporary secular progressive worldview that, uh, that, our morality is any better than it was in the 1920s. Yeah, I think, no, you're right. And uh, I think what's happened there is the progressives essentially have, that's why I said that they're much more in line, the progressives are much more in line with the secularized Marxist view than they are the ancient pagan view. Now, here's a very interesting phenomenon. In some ways, secular conservatives today, secular political conservatives, are more like the ancient pagans in cyclical views of history. See, they will oppose, they will look at the, um, uh, at the cultural Marxists and the, quote, modern progressives and say, oh, that's just totally wrong. And, of course, that is a correct assessment. But their response to that is, well, we need to recognize there can't be any real progress in history. Let's just kind of lope along. Uh, let's just do the best we can. They don't have any hope, Ryan, in the Bible and the truth of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. So let's just make it through life the best we can and not buy into these culturally Marxist premises. Well, of course, that's wrong also. It's not a question of progress versus no progress. And that's why what I appreciate so much about the EICC and Dr. Boot and you and uh, other uh, ministries, sadly there are too few of them, it's not simply an issue of we're going to stand for the truth. It's we're going to uh, press the truth in all areas of life, expecting, wholly expecting by the power of the Spirit of God to see the kingdom of God advance. So we're not just going to muddle along. We believe yeah. that the kingdom of God will advance and despite hardship, despite persecution. We don't deny any of that. We don't hold to the health and wealth or prosperity gospel. Uh, some of us, let's face it, could die martyrs' deaths, but nonetheless... The kingdom of God will advance in time and history. That's that is one of the great hopes of the gospel, beginning in Genesis three fifteen. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. The gospel isn't uh, like the truth of the gospel. The uh, the cultural battle isn't uh, isn't a hard fought war back to a pluralism, back to neutrality. That's right. Um, yeah, that's right. The the gospel, though the gospel itself is unchanging as a deposit. The gospel is static, but the trajectory of the gospel is dynamic. I mean, the goal of the gospel is to bring all culture, all the world, under the authority of Christ the King. That doesn't mean, by the way, universalism, that every single person will be saved. The Bible certainly doesn't teach that. But it does teach there's going to be a great, great godly revival and reformation before the end. And that's what we're working for and praying for and looking forward to. Uh, You mentioned um, back, uh, back when... I guess presidential candidate Obama was uh, was campaigning. He uh, he was able to uh, to land land this phrase that uh, the Republicans would take take society back to the 1920s. Um, and you brought up the idea of evolving moral standards. And part like you can't really talk about uh, or use the word evolving without starting to think about Darwinism. Um, is is there an element of that? It's, it sounds like there's a real element of of a, of a Darwin, Darwinian outlook uh, in this uh, in this progressive worldview. Yes, and that's historically verifiable. I mean, think about it. Darwin and Marx were contemporaries. Mm. 
and certainly knew of one another. And, and uh, Marx was quite thrilled with uh, Darwin's theory. In fact, I think it's fair to say that Marx's social theory is essentially the counterpart to Darwin's uh, scientific theory. Uh, so essentially what Darwin was saying in Survival of the Fittest is that there is this conflict in the environment among living creatures and the fittest survive, and their, their new species come about. Well, in essence, that's what dialectical materialism is. It's the notion that there are these conflicts, beginning the inner conflict within everything, that transforms individuals and transforms cultures, and they evolve into something better. And by the way, that's to get back to your question on the ethical fluidity or, or um, evolving moral standards, by the way, that's precisely why Marx and the cultural Marxists hold that. Uh, their view is there, there's no possibility of there being any such thing as absolute moral standards because absolute moral standards have to evolve like everything else. I was just talking uh, yesterday to a friend and pointed out, you can read it right in the Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they say, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little here, Ryan, but they say talking about an independent judiciary, and they say they scoffed at that. They say, what is the judiciary and what is law but simply a tool of politics? Well, that runs flatly contrary to the word of God and to the best of Western culture. I mean, our view of justice should be blind. There should be absolute laws. Murder is always wrong, full stop. Theft is always wrong, full stop. Adultery is always wrong, full stop. But you can't really hold that view as a consistent Marxist because everything is in flux. Now, if you think about it, those philosophically inclined, there are so many, so many just uh, self-refuting uh, elements of Marxism. If, after all, everything is evolving, then, of course, the Marxist idea that everything is evolving is still evolving. So they want to absolutize this notion that moral standards are evolving. But, of course, that's refuted by their very own system. We, we started off, I started off asking you about um, this, uh, this, use of, this use of language. And you, you, uh, you made the, uh, just a passing comment that, uh, that it is it's worth uh, looking back at, that um, God refers to himself as the Logos, the Word. Jesus Christ is the Word made, made flesh. God creates um, the world and sustains it and holds it together by His Word. Um, so this uh, this is sort of jumping to a parallel track a little bit, but uh, what is uh, what does that look like for the Christian author? Um, if uh, if we if we understand writing as as a cultural task and writing for for the the sake of the kingdom of God as kingdom work uh what uh i guess maybe what advice or what uh what would you say to a christian writer who wants to honor god uh with their writing yes very good well i've got several pieces of advice there first uh, recognize language is a remarkable gift from god you know ryan it's one of those things uh like air and oxygen it's because we have it all the time we take it for granted. You know, it's only when we're underwater and can't get to the surface that we understand how vital and how important air really is. And it's only when we get to the point where, for some reason, we can't use language uh, that we understand how vital language really is. It's a remarkable gift from God. Yeah. yeah. Let us remember that when God wished to communicate with man, 
he did not communicate principally by means of a visualization. Now, I don't deny that God can do that, like with the temple and various symbols. Uh, Christ himself is the image. Uh, that's kind of the language in English that's used in Hebrews uh, of God and so on. But when he gave his revelation in a comprehensive way to teach man the truth, he chose specifically to do it in language. And that's because this is a part of to be made in the image of God. Uh, I like what Peter Lightheart said once uh, reverently. He says, you know, God's sort of a chatty fellow. There's a lot of truth in that. You see, God likes to talk. I mean, God, he doesn't have to, but I mean, we sometimes ask, what about the members of the Trinity? You know, there's one substance. They're all God. How do they communicate? Well, the Bible indicates that they do talk to one another. Isn't that just a remarkable thing? It doesn't have to be that way, but God chose that. So it's not surprising he would make man to be a, a, a language, a linguistic being. Right. Uh, so... <clears throat> I think, uh, just mentioning quickly, I think of the Tower of Babel. Here we have the sort of the separate, the diversification of languages. Some people are opposed to a single language, but I think one day that through the power of the preaching of the gospel, maybe the whole earth will speak a single uh, language. Now, language is not perfect because we live in a sinful world, but nonetheless, a biblical view of language is that language conforms to reality, even, even the abstractions. Nonetheless, they're what we call concrete abstractions like love or hatred or thought. They're not things we can see and touch. They're not tactile, but nonetheless, they're real. So you, language itself is designed to accurately reflect a reality. So anytime there's an attempt to subvert a language and create a chasm between the language and the reality, that is subversive and is really demonic. And that's why with Derrida and deconstruction, and all of this uh, playfulness with language to tend to be subversive is really diabolical because eventually what it's doing is subverting uh, the, the principal mechanism by which God communicates with man and by which God has determined that men and women should communicate with one another and across generations. Uh, so, I mean, that's one of the great things. We can read writings from the 12th century, the 14th century, and, and so on. So I would say to writers to, to be very respectful of language, reverent toward language. Not only we're worshiping it, only God is to be worshipped, but nonetheless there's a sense of secondary reverence toward language, that we cannot treat it any way that we want to treat it. Uh, and part of that is, of course, the biblical prohibition of taking God's name in vain. You can't just, we're, we're not permitted to use any language we want to use. Our language is under God's authority. But being very respectful of language is important. And then the last thing I'll say about that, and we could talk more if you'd like, mm is it's very wrong to employ language for ideologically, politically ideological uh, purposes. Uh, a good example of that is egalitarian grammar. Now, I think uh, perhaps even some of your listeners may not know this or may not be aware of it. Um, God has structured the universe in a covenantal way, so there's representation all around in families and in churches and and politics and so on. That's right. You may have you may have noticed lately. In fact, over the last 20 years, even conservatives will use constructions like this: um, a a a person will do such and such, and he or she or they. Well, historically, the right. uh, basically they have used the the masculine pronoun of he to refer to both men and women, and that's not because women were somehow inferior or shouldn't be mentioned. It's simply because, in many cases, men would represent their families, and therefore the use of he would refer to both 
men and women. But uh, egalitarian grammar comes in, and in an attempt to subvert God's uh, order, God's proper hier- linguistic uh, hierarchy, hierarchy by means of language, I would say, they produce constructions like using the term they, which is, of course, uh, collective plural, uh, when they should refer to to uh, a singular. The problem with singular is that you have to use he or she, but sometimes rather than he or she, why is the word they use? Because not even today in our transgender uh, climate, not even he or she would be permitted. (laughs) That would be considered to be offensive, and so it would have to be they. Uh, You know, uh, if you're a person who does this, you know, they, or so-and-so did this, and they did rather than he. That's just one prime example of of that. The other, of course, is getting rid of, and this is a very simple one, getting rid of the word man, fireman. Um, We used to say stewardesses and house flight attendants, and I understand in the case if it's a male, but we'd call them stewards, a steward on an airplane. But the whole notion, uh, I know it seems like a very small thing, but you asked the question, Ryan, and though it seems small, little changes like that in language are designed to change the way people think and act. No, absolutely. So, yeah, those are a couple of pieces. I could go on, but those are a couple of pieces of advice. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really – it's useful and it's it's actionable. This is something that you can you can start doing right away. It's yeah. uh, just understand that um, even in Genesis, the Scripture says that God created man in his own image, male and female. That's right. It's laying it out right there, isn't it? God even says there – now, understand – that when I say, of course, we're dealing in English translation, but in the, nonetheless, sure. uh, when, when I say man, and you can look at it in the Greek and Hebrew, many times you'll have this man. When it says man, then it is referring, and God says there. He says right there in Genesis, that's what I'm doing. I'm not demeaning women in any way. It's just a descriptive, it's strong, descriptive, covenantal language. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish people understood that, but there is an agenda, an ideological agenda, uh, quote, progressive agenda behind this egalitarian grammar, you know. So that brings up the, an, a, a related question, and you brought up uh, Derrida, and I guess the, the question is, like, what, uh, what is the, the end game, the progressive end game? Where does the agenda lead? Because even Derrida, I think later on, I, he, said, he said something like, he, he, uh, he disavowed the label of deconstructionist, and he he said, you know, deconstructionism can't, uh, basically can't exist without something to deconstruct. Like, you can't have the uh, the negation without some positive existence of a thing first, of a word, of a concept, of a language. And it's, uh, like, it's the same with, uh, with anarchy. Like, you can't, uh, you can't rebel against nothing. You, right. you need to have an authority in place if you want to subvert it. That's right. No, you've asked a good question there. We live in a God-rigged universe. So <laughs> yeah, the end game for them yeah. is to completely subvert language. But the fact is, Ryan, that's impossible. I mean, God has structured the universe such that that we cannot live as human beings without language, and without, without language having some objective referent, a reference to reality. So this is the example of the person who says, well, I'm going to subvert the law of gravity. It really doesn't exist, or I'm going to prove it doesn't exist. Well, he can try to disprove it, and he can wreak havoc on himself and many other people. 
Yeah, but in the yeah, end, he's not, going, like, uh, yeah, he's not going to get rid of it. So, um, And this is true of a lot of that cultural Marxism. I mean, this, this is analogous to the case of trying to get rid of, uh, of sex uh, by calling it gender and thinking that we can reinvent human sexuality. Well, good luck with that. I mean, it's never worked and it never will. Now, by body modification, by operations, uh, you can wreak great havoc in young children when you try to take away their the sex that God has given them and uh, cause problems with your body and mind and so on. I mean, among uh, you know uh, those who have had sex change operations in the society, you may have seen this stat. It's staggering. The uh, the uh, suicide attempts are 20 times higher than they are in the general population. Yeah, so yeah, there are prices right. to be paid for this. But their end game is not God's end game, and that is a great blessing. So they... While they can uh, unleash a lot of havoc in their uh, subversion of language, they can't succeed because, like you said, there has to be something there to subvert. And what will happen eventually is people will say, oh, this isn't working. This is evil. We have to presuppose a Christian view of language in order to attack the Christian view of language. Like Van Til said, it's sort of like the little girl that has to sit on her daddy's lap in order to slap him on the face. I mean, you have to presuppose the truth in order to assault the truth. So the good news for us is that they're not going to succeed. There is some bad news, and that is they can really wreak a great deal of damage along the way, and that's what we need to work at combating. Right. Yeah, so, um, Andrew, this has, been, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, for, uh, before I let you go, for those who are, who are keen to work to combat this uh, this subversion to uh, to mitigate the havoc to work restoration. Um, what are uh, what are some resources or what are some next steps or where uh, where should we be where should we be looking? Yeah, um, you mean particularly like books and so on. Books and so on. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just self promote. I hope that first that well before that to go to the EICC website and also uh, mine ChristianCulture.com. Yeah, uh, as far always. as books, go to those yeah. two websites. What's that? Always, yeah. Go to those no, two I, websites yeah. a couple times a week. No, yeah, exactly. So I would mention a couple of titles. A wonderful book on progress is by the um, Scottish writer, theologian John Bailey. It's kind of spelled in the Scottish way, B-I-L-L-I-E, The Belief in Progress. does a wonderful job. The Belief in Progress, it's called. And then on uh, language and the misuse of language and all of that, Michael Walsh's book, The Devil's Pleasure Palace, the subtitle is The Cult of Critical Theory and the Subversion of the West, Michael Walsh, W-A-L-S-H, The Devil's Pleasure Palace. And then on the left, Subversion of Language, a wonderful book is by a British author, British conservative, Roger Scruton, called Fools, Frauds, and Firebrand. Oh, yeah, I just started reading that. Uh, that book is masterly. I don't know of ma- perhaps no single book that I have read that puts together, you know, between uh, two covers uh, such a remarkable, extensive refutation of the of cultural Marxists and their idiocy. Uh, everybody from uh, Gramsci to Sartre to, I mean, all the all the usual suspects are there, and he really goes into depth on that. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, and the final on the subversion of language and critical theory, um, the book by Abrams. Uh, it's been out quite a while now, but it's quite good. It's called The Mirror and the Lamp. The Mirror and the Lamp. Um, 
by Abrams. And then, uh, well, okay, I'm going to make. Do I have room for one more, Ryan? Oh yeah. The yeah. classic is Ed. Her uh, I'm sorry, E. D. Hirsch. H. I. R. S. C. H. Validity in interpretation. Validity in interpretation. It's a classic work. It's been reprinted many, many times. It's. He wrote it in the early '60s. He saw what was happening at the time, and he points out that. Essentially, if language doesn't have a basis in reality, that eventually anything goes, and it's utterly self-defeating, like we were talking about. But it's called validity and interpretation. But I mean, those are some. Uh, but you know, you can go, I'm sure, to the CCL website, the EICC website, and get more research, uh, resources rather on this. Andrew, thanks so much for being here. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. It's always a real enlightening time. You bet, Ryan. I love standing shoulder to shoulder with you guys, and uh, God bless you all, and look forward to seeing you soon. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, share, rate the podcast on your favorite listening platform. For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.